Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. David's continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. One of the fun things I've been doing lately is uh, putting together a volume with uh, the occult um, editor, writer, and publisher Daniel Schulke uh, of Three Hands Press and Zoanon Press. Uh, we've been putting together an edited collection called Daimon and Pharmacon uh, about the connections between entheogens and the occult. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, one of the pieces we got was from uh, Danny Diskin, a.k.a. Reverend Nemu, who uh, long listeners of the show will recognize as a, a figure who's appeared in the past. I think we interviewed him in 2014. Um, and he turned in a, a, a marvelously fun piece that included within it a lot of um, – Nice, juicy, uh, biographical snapshots of his salad days as a chaos magician and uh, sort of rave-saturated early or mid-90s uh, UK. And uh, they, were, they were delightful forays, but I will re resist going into the details, so you'll go buy the book eventually. But um, uh, it did make me uh, – it did stir up ideas and questions about uh, that particular period of time in uh, in um, the history of, of the occult. I think he may have been a slightly later uh, participant in that current, but it's something that I very much think of as a, a British uh, current. You know, it's really, uh, uh, you know, Peter Carroll and other dudes starting to talk about new ways of doing magic in the late 70s. Uh, they start putting it together in various ways in Australia and different places. Different people pick up the spirit in the 1980s, so it's infused with a certain kind of, uh, uh, you know, post-punk industrial grit, uh, and that's part of the vibe. And you know, now chaos magic is a sort of, you know, can be found anywhere and nowhere. Um, it, uh, it's it's like like so many things these days. Once you get online, it's it's all over the place. Uh, but I realized that there are, you know, different stories of uh, the history of chaos magic and that I was uh, lucky enough to actually know someone who was participating very deeply uh, in the Bay Area in the 1990s. And for really long time listeners, like since the beginning, you might remember Joe Max because we had Joe on the show in like 2011 talking about uh, the Hieronymus machine and, and other curious occult uh, uh, devices, which he is both fascinated in and manufactures on occasion. And, and Joe is a marvelous raconteur who I first met through the um, open source order of the Golden Dawn, an interesting esoteric uh, group in the Bay Area, which is uh, – changing currently as uh, so many things do in this world uh but i wanted to bring joe on the show uh to uh you know go, walk walk a little bit down memory lane uh the the, the chaotic sewers beneath <laughs> memory lane uh, <laughs> and he uh he, he thankfully agreed so joe welcome to the show hi eric thank you for having me rock on tour i haven't been called that very often that's a good one well, you are, maybe because I, you know, it's funny when I when I meet people who have interesting histories, I tend to ask them about their their the stories 
And it took me a while to realize that most people don't do that. They'll meet somebody new and they'll just start t chatting about whatever. But if I know that like you were whatever, at, you know, at some uh, acid test or if there was some kind of thing you were doing back in the day, I'll, it's like I'll, I'll usually find my way to to ask those questions. So I think to start out is I, I guess the, the curious one for me is when you first started to explore the occult, uh, whether you were interested in the chaos current right from the get go or whether that was something you discovered a little bit down the line. And in either case, what was it about that that current that that uh, that jazzed you at the time? Well, it definitely did not start out that way. Uh, my 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 first interest in the occult probably goes back to being a teenage witch. And this is a long time ago. Uh, you know, you know, then we're talking the late 60s, early 70s. And this is like the first occult revival. Uh, well, I don't know. You can't really call it the first occult revival. But it was the one in the 60s with the hippies. And, and uh, uh, me and my teenage friends uh, fancied ourselves witches. Uh, and uh, we didn't have much to work on, work with at the time. I mean, we found we found, uh, we found uh, uh, Levy's Transcendental Magic book in the library. Uh, we found a couple of popular paperbacks by people like Sybil Leak. Um, and uh, uh, you know, we basically just made it up as we went along. <laughs> Now, after a while there, you know, then I went to college, I got involved with other things, I got into music, uh, I was part of the uh, uh, the whole punk scene in San Francisco, and that's a whole other set of stories I'll have to, to uh, regale you with sometime. But, uh, and it, it, it all kind of ties together, Chaos Magic is kind of the punk rock of, of uh, the occult. Um, and, um, but then... Uh, uh, I got started to get back into it. I started to really, I first dipped my, my myself back into it with goetic magic and uh, talisman working, and then branched from there and got started to get into doing Enochian work. Uh, um, but still, I was, you know, felt like I was casting around trying to find something that really interested me. Well, uh, let me interrupt. Yeah. I just want to get one little, okay. uh, get a, a bit of a connection on the punk rock thing. I mean, it, the, the the San Francisco punk rock scene was, I mean, all punk scenes in the late seventies and the eighties were different. They were all regional. They all had very local characters. Mm -hmm. But but partly because I'm I live here and I and I know more about it. There's a there's a certain extra character to the San Francisco or the Bay Area punk scene and i'm particularly interested and i've always been interested in in how it related to whether it was just you and your friends or there was a wider sensibility that that even though part of the punk thing was to reject a lot of hippie shit um and and especially like goofy naive hippie shit that there was still a place uh for psychedelics and there was still a place for a certain kind of whatever you want to call it, esotericism or uh, edge experiences, limit experiences. Mm -hmm. So as someone who, who was there and who already had witchcraft in your, flowing in your blood, or uh, metaphorically at least, um, how was it to move through that scene with still being interested in esoterica and mysticism and altered states of consciousness, things that we don't necessarily associate directly 
with punk rock? Well, the San Francisco scene was definitely its own scene uh, in that sense. Uh, it started when, when punk started in San Francisco, it was like the, the mid to late 1976. Nobody knew who the Sex Pistols were. Okay, the, the, the closest thing to punk we really had at that time was Patti Smith and the Ramones. And if you look at those, those particular musical artists, you don't really look at them and see Sex Pistols. You don't see the British style of punk rock. That didn't come for another year. Uh, or at least another six months or so. But uh, so San Francisco always was its own scene, and it had its own its own aesthetic. It had its own philosophy. A lot of the uh, the, the punk rockers, yes, they were putting aside all the hippy dippy stuff, but they were still a lot of them were very politically active. And and uh, hell, there was a couple of bands that were avowed communists. And. To a lot of people, that was just another way to rub it in the face of the squares. I'm going to go up on stage and play my set wearing a, 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 uh, a Soviet hammer and sickle on my T-shirt. Uh, so it, it was a, it, there was a difference here. It wasn't until several years later or a year later when the punk became this mass culture thing. I can almost remember when the first like like television special on the phenomenon of punk rock. And here's your host, Anderson Cooper, <laughs> whoever they had at the time. <laughs> uh, and then it just kind of exploded. All of the, the, the suburban kids picked it up, and there they were at all the clubs that were, you know, where we used to be alone and doing our own weird stuff. Uh, but honestly, I didn't really think of bringing the, my, my esoterica into it. I mean, I still kept my finger in it. I read tarot cards for friends. I, you know, did my own little small practices, but most of the people in Funk scene, they didn't really know much about that part of myself. That didn't come out until raves started happening. Fascinating. And at that point, were you already into, uh, into the chaos current? Yes, I was at that point. That happened about 1989 was the first time uh, that I, you know, and I was like, you know, uh, that I first became aware of what chaos magic was. And it was uh, being talked about on an old computer bulletin board system. Remember those? I do. <laughs> it's, what we, it's what we had before the Internet, kids. Uh, and um, someone mentioned chaos magic. And I said, oh, what's that? Invocation of Mandelbrot? Uh, ritual fractals? What is it? And they, I had some of the basic ideas explained to me, and I was told I should go find Pete Carroll's book. But I kind of put it aside for another year or so. I was uh, uh, distracted at the time. And, uh, but, I, but then I was unexpectedly given a copy of Carroll's book by a friend in the rave scene in San Francisco. This would have been around 1991. Uh, and uh, then I got back into contact with the people who I chatted with on the BBS, who turned out to be members of the IOTs, the Illuminates of Sanateros, uh, Peter Carroll's uh, magical order. Uh, I hadn't talked to them since then because I was going through a rather sticky divorce at the time, so I was a bit distracted. In the meantime, I've been experimenting with the Eidetic Magic of Thelema with other friends, and there was a lot of magical thinking going on in San Francisco around that time. Uh, but I did connect with these people, but by that time they had left the IOT and formed their own magical guild called the Autonomatrix. 
Well, so I, I just I want to stop just to hear uh, just oh, for okay. a moment to indicate to the youngins out there um, that one of the interesting things about the pre-web internet uh, in this era, at least from the late uh, late 80s onward, in this world of uh, BBSs uh, and then eventually of mailing lists and and the alt groups that were part, you know, yeah, of uh-huh. the. Uh, uh, Usenet and the earlier, again, all of these kind of pre-internet, internet, I mean, pre-World Wide Web, internet uh, right. features, pl- platforms, technologies, is that they were full of weirdos. Uh, no, there, there was a much higher percentage weirdos of weirdos online than, than, there, than, than later on when everybody got online, and then you'd have a more conventional uh, sort of slice of weirdos. Yeah. And so it was really a place for people who are interested in esotericism and psychedelics and unconventional sexual relations and anarchism and radical politics. There was just a lot of very curious scenes there. And that, and I, and this is, I'm in a way a setup for what we're going to hear about the Atonimatrix is that the very space that was opened up by the internet, the sense of an alternative way of communicating of alternative forms of community, all the stuff that now we're completely sick of hearing uh, hyped versions of, of as they you know suck us down the path of of infinite surveillance there was a period when that was not necessarily in the cards or maybe if you were a total cynic you could have said it was always in the cards or was always inevitable but it certainly didn't look that way and so this sort of right and then that actually infused the magical spirit and that's part of what Atonimatrix was doing it was the underground Literally the underground. Nobody really, there were no magazine articles and and TV specials about what was going on. And I think it was also, it filtered out a lot of the real, okay, let's say it it filtered in highly intelligent people. You had to have a computer. You had to be at least savvy enough to know how to work it and how to run, you know, get connected to BBS systems. It was not just for casual people. Uh, It was for the... uh, the intelligentsia. So the level of learning and discussion and sharing that was going on was of, at a lot higher level than you see nowadays for the most part. And then, and then uh, did the Atonimatrix sort of live in these networks to some degree, or was it very much a, a real world, you know, face-to-face, get-together, do stuff, or was it a mix of the, of the two? It was a mix of the two. Uh, we did. Uh, we we had weekly meetings. We had we you know where uh, and Autonomatrix gatherings were more like literary salons. Uh, it's where each uh, a person would bring in some some kind of occult or magical process or, or or tradition or something that they had been interested in and work something out that they could do with a group. So we were eclectic as hell. We were grabbing stuff from every place we could find, putting it, or throwing it into our chaos blender, and coming out with something uh, that we worked together. But at the same time, and this is all, you know, meat space. We were there, in, you know, getting together at least, usually there are a dozen or so of us at each of these gatherings. But we also, the Autonomatrix ran its own BBS. It was called Meat for Breakfast. And spelled M E A T. Uh, and uh, 
the uh, uh, and we ran that from 1992 to maybe 1994 in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, and um, so this so this was like before Usenet or Internet, you know, before the World Wide Web, and Internet was just Internet was starting to become like uh, another door in a BBS system, you know, here and you can in our local chat group, and here you can go over here and click on this. And it will take you to the internet, which is oh okay, and um, <laughs> so it was just another option at the time. Uh, so yes, we were doing both, uh, and that also we were very active on another network called FFNet at the time. I don't know if you were around the Bay Area at that time or not, but uh, uh, this was a local BBS network. Uh, they even put kiosks in nightclubs where you That's could put great. a quarter in. And log on to SFNet for X amount of minutes per quarter. Like a vending <laughs> you know, machine. Joe, I wanted to ask you one, uh, one thing. Uh, you mentioned how eclectic uh, you, you guys were in the, in the Autonomatrix and, and uh, you know, the sort of everything goes chaos blender approach. When you first encountered the ideas of chaos magic, which is an eclectic way of approaching uh, you know, sorcery and, and, and magical operations. W- was that part of what appealed to you? Like, what was it when you sort of got the breath of the of the chaos vibe and 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 finally read Peter's book uh, and started talking more to your your friends? Was it like was it the call of the eclectic? Was it the sense that it was more current because more punk rock, uh, less tradition bound? Like, what was it that got your uh, that got you jazzed? Well, it's a combination of the, you know, not being tradition bound uh, and uh, the the and the experimental nature of it all. Uh, I mean, and what I got out of when I read Carol's book, when I read uh, Lieber Null, what really struck me was this guy has stripped away all of the accoutrements, all of the traditions and the gods and the, the and Boiled it down to just what works, and that was a yeah. very important thing to me because that is a, that's kind of a punk rock aesthetic. Let's throw away all these fancy recording studio tricks and synthesizers and all of this other big orchestral arrangements, and let's get back to three chords. And that I think is what appealed to me the most about it. It activated my punk rock sensibility again. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting moment, actually, because thinking about, you know, the way in which chaos magic does emerge from the earlier hippie occult revival. Uh, they're obviously coming out of the those those scenes They're they're there's you know, they enjoyed reading Crowley and all that kind of thing. Um and 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 religious mysticism or the suit, the pursuit of mystical experience was such an important part of the hippie stuff and it, it, you know, and it ended up making all sorts of different things happen. The magic, you know, est, self-help, Buddhism, yoga, all this stuff kind of manifests, but very little of that other stuff survived punk rock. Like punk rock was not interested in meditation. Punk rock was not interested in achieving one oneness with the universe, but the occult (laughs) stream still was part of that. That's what's so interesting about chaos magic to me. I mean, it's, it's like, it, it it recognized that something new had happened with punk on a deep level be, beyond fashion or just even or music even 
and uh-huh. it recognized that there was an esoteric or mystical dimension of that change that that really nothing else really kind of made that. So there's something even now, to my mind, very fresh about a lot of the things you guys were up to at that at that point. And people still do today. I mean, it's a still a living tradition. Um, but I, I do want to ask you about one particular since I'm a, a Lovecraft head. I, I, I do want to ask about how uh, uh, the, the sort of Cthulhu mythos to sort of somewhat misname it entered into the conversations at the Autonomatrix and when you guys started figuring out like, well, maybe we should try stuff. Maybe we should actually try working with this. Um, I'd love to hear <laughs> that unfolded. Okay, the first inspiration, I think, and I kind of almost remember when this happened, was uh, I, I, a fellow that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give the magical name we used for him, which was Fire Clown. Um, and uh, he's still around. Uh, he's, now he's making esoteric jewelry. Um, but um, uh, this fellow, he brought in a Xerox copy of uh, uh, Phil Hines' Pseudonomicon. And this was uh, Chaos Magic author Phil Hines' uh, take on doing Lovecraftian magic. And we looked at that and went, ooh, yeah. Now, here's something edgy and cool. Uh, you know, I think I remember just a passage sticks out in my mind in that book is like Phil, Hines, Phil asking the question, why would anyone want to invoke beings that could rip your face off? Uh, <laughs> It's a good question. That was punk rock. That was, you know, that was it. Uh, so um, uh, we did do quite a bit of Lovecraftian work, especially with one of the working groups in the Autonomatrix, which is called the Temple Anakai. And then what can you can you talk about any of the workings? Do you what would you relate about uh, of what the most successful what, what or before we go into the nitty gritty, if we can go into the nitty gritty, let's sure. go a little more into. So from the outside, the left hand, the attraction to the left hand pass to working with demons, to invoking, uh, you know, beings that want to rip your face off. It, it, you know, it's it sort of goes against the grain of, of most people's inclinations. There is a subset of people who are attracted to that who actually kind of want to be, let's for lack of a better term, evil. Like they're into, you know, the whole vibe of kind of hate or they're into the negative, but like fully like they're, they identify with it. But there's this whole other world that I associate more with chaos magic and with certain aspects of the OTO and you know, where it's just more complicated than that. It's not, it's not right to say there's a lot of magicians who are interested in, in invoking or working with or, or playing on the edge of these dark possibilities, but they're not doing it because they just want to be evil, you know, and, but from the outside it's really unclear. So I'm curious how you, describe whether it's just out of punk rock and impetuousness and and hell let's you know caution be damned uh safety third plunge into the unexpected uh or what or other or other kinds of reasons like what was it about the idea of invoking beings fictional beings that would might want to rip rip your face off um what was it attractive about that what made that interesting what made that seem valuable to you we were looking for intensity. If you went to any, you know, a, a Wiccan coven or an OTO, 
uh, uh, you know, an OTO meeting, gathering, you know, it's like going to church. Oh, they have all these lines they're going to recite, and they're going to say this and that, and you're supposed to womp yourself up into a, you know, a Gnostic state so that you can appreciate the magicality of it all. And there's certainly a place for that, but that's not what we were looking for. We were looking for excitement. We were looking for intensity. We were looking for something that would put our weird shit-o-meters into the red zone because that was what magic meant to us, and that was the same kind of – so we weren't looking for evil. Good and evil really weren't even part of the equation. We were looking for intensity, just like punk rock was. A lot of people, oh, punk rockers, they're violent and evil, and they jump around and spit on each other, and there must be horrible, evil people. No, we were just looking for the intensity. We wanted to live, and that was what the inspiration for us was. Yeah, that's a that's a fine uh, fine answer. So, uh, tell me about like uh, some of the. I know that it, you did dream work surrounding uh, the the you know the Cthulhu workings to call them that, uh, and oh. that's a very interesting thing. But it, because of course, when you get into the whole issue of like, well. These things are just fictions. Lovecraft made them up. And you're like, well, you know, kind of. Lovecraft had a pretty weird dream life. And actually, yeah. some of the stories come from his dreams and some of the names. And Necronomicon mm-hmm. comes from a dream. Nyarlathotep comes from a dream. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, well, okay, that Hell, you shifts it a little life. bit. But it certainly opens up the dreaming as part of the domain of the exploration of this particular facet of weirdness. Well, one of the working groups, like I mentioned, was uh, the Axis Temple Anakai, and that, our focus was doing experiments with Lovecraftian mythos. So we had come up with a ritual called the Gate of Shubnugaroth, and the idea was to open a portal to the dreamlands, like Lovecraft's Randolph Carter character. Uh, the idea, you know, the practical idea originally was to try to link ourselves telepathically so that we could share a common dream. That was the goal. Now, it worked but not in the way we thought it would. Because instead of sharing a dream, over the next few days after that ritual, we all dreamed what seemed to be in a common setting, but each of us dreamt a different part of the story. When we compared our notes, we realized that we could string the scenes together into a logical sequence. We didn't appear in each other's dreams. We were like the one, the the common character past, to each, like an avatar, handed over to each person for the next part of the story. Were some of the so, settings the same? Like that there was, was that oh, some yeah. of the... Re- oh, yes. Oh, yes. My dream seemed to be the beginning when it, we worked it all out, it would, and, which I was walking through a windswept flat desert of gray sand and what looked to be like a sandstone roundhouse in the middle of it. There was nothing else as far as the eye could see. And I just, it seemed like I'd wandered around, you know, there was, you know, now that I think about it, there may have been mountains in the distance. So now looking back on it, it's almost like the playa at Burning Man, which I knew <laughs> nothing about. <laughs> it was 1993 <laughs> or 94. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, there, inside that roundhouse was a spiral staircase, which I descended. And it was in, like in, increasingly dark as I went down, and it, but it was lit by a very dim magenta-like light. And that was pretty much all I could remember. So that's what I put my, in my notes. But then I announced another person 
dreamed of being in a dimly lit round room with a staircase ascending from it and a portal that led to another room, which is something I didn't see. But they went through the portal, and each person seemed to be providing another piece of this narrative. Now, honestly, I don't remember it all now. It was a pretty long time ago, and I've even tried to find Brad in the notes that we took from those days over the years, and I've never been able to find them. Uh, but it was really pretty incredible how it all strung together. And frankly, I think that's one of the tests of magical results is if you get results that are not exactly what you expected. Mm. If you get exactly what you expected, you might be fooling yourself with confirmation bias. But if it's a little off in left field, but still gets the job done, that means you didn't just make it up. Yeah. You know, I want to stop there and just kind of note the way in which the idea of, of confirmation bias, which is an idea from cognitive science, and it's now gained quite a a sort of spread through the world as a way of uh, both criticizing your enemies and more helpfully uh, questioning your own assumptions. Um, And it's a, you know, it's a piece of what we would have to call rationalism. This is not the, uh, my mystical inner voice told me, uh, you know, to, to that you're my future wife thing. This is the, come on, man. I, I gotta I have some questions for that inner voice side of the equation. How much was that kind of skeptical thinking part of your approach, either individually or even your, in terms of the, the other folks in the uh, Atana Matrix, that part of what you were doing was, was uh, constructing these intense experiences or, or, or creating the possibility for them, but also refusing to, you're resisting certain kinds or aspects of supernatural thinking that almost inevitably come up when you start doing intense, weird stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we wanted, you know, like you say, you know, I, I wanted the spirits to speak to me and tell me something beyond all you people on Earth should love each other and uh, uh, work together to preserve your planet. Yeah, I know all that. <laughs> tell me something I don't know surprise me because most of the people that go into these channelers and these you know because the the new agey people like you talked about you know they just want to confirmation of what they already believe and somehow the spirits always tell them exactly what they expected to hear the spirits say we didn't want that we wanted to throw ourselves off the cliff and say say anything to us you want (laughs) even if it's unintelligible we'll take it Interesting. And then, uh, did you ever have, uh, any of your, of your Cthulhu workings where you were a little concerned with either your sanity or what you, (laughs) what rules of reality you might've just broken, you know, where that, Uh, where the, the, the deep fear strikes? Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll tell you about when we, the time we pushed it as close to the edge (laughs) as I can remember. Uh, now this was, this was a it was a joint project of the Atana Matrix and Thalema Lodge OTO, and it was called the Oranus Collective. Uh, and we performed this ritual at their lodge. Uh, the, the, now, the night we all assembled to perform it, right before we began, there was a power failure. Whole street blacked out. Now we were planning to use candles anyway, but now we were completely forced 
to do everything by candlelight. And we had also had a recorded track that we wanted, we're going to play along with it, you know, background music. It was mostly a static drumming sound. But we had to go and get a boombox so that we could play that. Now, this was uh, uh, an invocation of Nyarlathotep and a summoning of a, a, to, and a, a, a telepathic summoning of Cthulhu. Uh, the ritual involved uh, uh, first doing a summoning of Nyarlathotep, which somebody had like basically kludged from voodoo, and the summonings for Papa Legba, and converted it into <laughs> into a Lovecraftian style, because Nyarlathotep is the messenger. You must go to him first if you want to communicate with the old ones. Uh, then there was a opening of the gate of Yagsotha, which was a, 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 a variation on the same ritual we had done for the dream working. Uh, we even had a, uh, a banishing ritual called we called the Star Onyx, which was a summoning of the Lovecraftian old ones to the quarters. Uh, it was our, our own uh, uh, lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. Uh, then it involved playing the drumming music. Several of us had noisemakers and, and drums, and we were playing flutes. We had, I had an ocarina. And walking around in random patterns, bumping into each other, hyperventilating, and speaking in tongues. The idea was to communicate with the crawling chaos at the center of the universe, Azathoth, who is depicted as being surrounded by dancers playing flutes infinitely. The chaos at the center of existence. If you Lovecraft people know what I'm talking about. Uh, the goal was to create an ungent to use as a means for telepathic dreaming. Uh, now, by the time we had worked all this and settled ourselves down into the working circle where we were going to prepare this as we chanted the famous Cthulhu passage from, uh, from Lovecraft, uh, the... Uh, you know, we were going to make a, a, a like an ungent, like a flying ointment. So smear it on your body and go to sleep. Now, I had ingredients like things like ashes, uh, camphor, a mixture of dried blood and sperm, and a, a hair of a black dog, and a crushed beetle. We got a dried beetle at the old bone room. Remember that place? Uh, <laughs> yeah. After, so... After opening the gate and we we're chanting the Cthulhu information, we put all the ingredients into a big mortar and crushed them. Now, this is a big beetle, about four inches long. And the sound of that beetle being crushed was one of the most sickening sounds I have ever heard in my life. One of the group got up, ran away, and threw up in a trash can. All of us were feeling hot and sweating and like, you know, there was like some horrible things floating over us. Some people were saying they could, it was like a black mist was obscuring their vision in the room. Uh, we all ended up pretty traumatized. One woman was in a daze for several minutes laying in front of the fireplace in Salema Lodge, just like mumbling to herself and sweating. We had to talk her down. Uh, now, so I think as far as doing ritual workings, that is the, the, the most intense uh, Cthuloid thing that I ever did. Uh, and honestly, I still have that vial of Ungent, my share of it. We all split it up. 
I've never used it. I'm actually kind of afraid to. Yeah, that's it. Now, so what do you think? I mean, it, as part of if if you think about that ritual, in, in as part of your overall kind of magical career, which had you know a lot of motivations, some you know some discovery, some entertainment, some uh, group collective experiment, some mystical you know visions. It's all part of it. How do you? Think of the the like. How do you interpret that? Like a point where you were like, "Whoa, that was getting a place where like people were actually being, you know, could could have been harmed, or it was a situation where you know, like, okay, we got to that edge. Like, how do you, um, what do you do with that? What do you do with a kind of, a kind of experience like that afterwards? Uh, relish it and tell great stories about it for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm being facetious, but you know it's almost like the, you know, it, it, it's it's uh, uh, it, the intensity of the experience is the reason to do it. It's almost like that old joke that from uh, uh, Marlon Brando and the Wild Ones. You know, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? Yeah. You know, the 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 doing of it is the goal. Uh, you know, it, 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 I think Phil Hine even put it this way: it's almost like a like like, like a test of your your strength and bravery. Can, do you dare do this? Because if you do, and you can get through it, there's a whole lot more you might be capable of that you didn't think you could do. Uh, I remember that uh, one of the uh, rituals we did in a uh, uh, in the Autonomatrix in in, in uh, Temple Babel was it called for drawing blood. I mean, just a little bit, you know, just poke your, you know, like, a, you know, like you would, I think we even had needles that they use, that diabetics use to test their blood sugar, uh, because you had to put a drop of blood on a sigil and another drop on your forehead. Um, <clears throat> but there was one member who was deathly afraid of needles. And he just would, couldn't quite bring himself to stick himself in the thumb. It really was a battle for him to overcome that fear and do it but he told us later he was no longer afraid of it so there's a result you can get right there it, it yeah it, you know you no longer have to fear this anymore you've confronted it it's a very you know it's basically the you know uh, phobia therapy for psychologists this is exactly what they do you're afraid of flying stick them in a plane make them fly yeah, I mean, one of the things that's reminding me of is uh, in the the lore of, of the Suicide Club, which is the San Francisco club that preceded the Cacophony Society, which is partly what led to Burning Man, et cetera, et cetera, that they had one of the, they also like to do things that were just extremely uncomfortable or frightening. Uh, and they didn't have any sort of, you know, kind of spiritual language about it or a little bit, I would say, but not not overtly. Um, but it was the same kind of idea of like, you know, for some people, like the idea of being naked in public was the most terrifying thing in the world. So that right. when they did like streaking on the cable cars, for some people, it was just a gas. But for some people, it was an initiation. And yeah. one of the things I'm drawing from what you're saying is that if you develop a spiritual sensitivity or sp spiritual sensibility that recognizes that in intensity is a good that that it's, it's valuable to, to face intensity that it also helps you face fear because anytime you're dealing with fear you're in intensity and if you can learn to appreciate and work with intensity 
then you suddenly have a very different way of dealing with your fears rather than letting them rule you. In fact, that was part of the initiation process we developed for the Autonomatrix. Every candidate had to basically compose their own uh, initiation ritual. So there was no standard initiation ritual into the guild. Everyone had their own personal one. And they worked with a mentor in the guild that would help and guide them and advise them and edit their work and stuff until they agreed that, that this is the ritual we're going to do. But one of the things that was insisted on is you had to come up with something that was your, that it was a fear in your life and incorporate that into your ritual. So we had people who, uh, one person, we, 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 we took her to the beach and buried her alive with nothing but straws to breathe through. And she had to remain there while people, uh, we, 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 we stomped on the ground around her and, and screamed threatening things that we were going to do to her until she finally couldn't stand it anymore and she would burst out of her grave. And uh, uh, there's another one where, another one was afraid of the sight of blood. So uh, um, uh, we had her, she had to draw blood from another member of the group. And one of the members volunteered. And so she very hesitantly took that exacto knife and she was just supposed to just do a little bit of a cut in, his, in, in the, you know, the, the thumb pad or the, you know, his palm. She ended up pushing too hard and practically cut an artery. We had to take him to the ER. Now, that was a real initiation for her. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say. Uh, there's another one where the, she, she want, the, the, the candidate wanted to, to dose herself with mush, magic mushrooms and be set loose in a graveyard. And she had to find, our way, find her way back to the car where we first met. Wow. Uh, you know, alone, although we actually not telling her we had someone following her around at a distance to make sure she was OK. Yeah. Well, well played. Well played. All, all of those are uh, are, are definitely uh, striking. Uh, and I think helps, you know, because part of what I'm trying to figure out to do here is to, is to sort of show the the different dimensions of uh, the cha uh, chaos magic and the sort of. Uh, intense dark side work that's not what it looks like necessarily from the outside. Um, and that also applies to joyous celebration in the sense that chaos magic, especially in the Bay Area, it sounds like, and as well as other places, definitely in the UK, was part of the, the rave scene as well. Like you guys were, this was the time of like peak rave weirdness, uh, sort of psychedelic oh, yeah. return. And how, how did the, how did the, your, your work and, and chaos magic sort of play into that scene that was happening also in the, in the early mid nineties? Well, I mean, I'd gotten into, you know, mostly as a, cause I'm an audio engineer by profession and uh, I was helping out with some of the audio stuff for uh, some of the raves in San Francisco. Uh, and I met a fellow named uh, Mark Healy who was the, uh, the, the, a British guy who came to San Francisco from the rave scene in England to establish it here. And they ran the Toontown Raves, which uh, if you were around in the 90s, you saw their posters. Um, and uh, uh, now uh, Michael was also a pretty spiritual guy, and he saw that dimension to what was going on and wanted to harness it. And so when... You know, we started getting to know each other and talking about it. He wanted to do a magical rave 
called Orgasm. And uh, this was at the old uh, King Street uh, 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 club uh, behind the Townsend in San Francisco. Uh, and so he set up, you know, a, a, an altar. You, you walked in the place, you, there was an altar there. And uh, people were encouraged to bring their own chakskis to place on the altar. Uh, and he wanted us to open the, uh, uh, open the rave with a ritual, uh, which we did. Um, we did a, a thing called uh, the, uh, the uh, opening a vortex, which is like opening an energy vortex in the middle of a working space. Uh, so I brought in my, I had, uh, you know, my ceremonial sword. I did a circle casting about it, and then we opened up the vortex in the middle of the dance floor. People who were there at first were just kind of, you know, some of them were really into it. Others were like, eh, I came here to take ecstasy and dance. Um, so, uh, but we noticed that after they got the music going and everything was happening and, uh, and, and the, that that area that we opened the vortex in, the dancers avoided it. It was like this empty 10 foot wide spot in the middle of the dance floor that nobody went into. Not even people who weren't even there when we started it. Somehow they all just avoided it. I remember standing up on the balcony with my fellow Chaos magicians looking down and going, "Wow, look! They're not, they're avoiding the vortex." <laughs> now we saw that as a way, you know, hey, they're doing doing ecstasy and they're all the thing and there's, there's, there's all this spiritual dimension to it that was not so present in punk rock. So maybe there's something there. Michael really wanted to shove it in that direction, but frankly, it just didn't work. Interesting. So Why do you think it didn't work? Because there were too many people who were just there to dance and take ecstasy. That was what they're there for. They didn't really yeah. care. Now, the early ravers, just like the early punks, had a lot more thought put into what they were doing. Then it became popular. Then come the tourists. And it does seem to be a, an inevitable law of subculture. Uh, repeated yeah. uh, over, mm-hmm. over, yeah, over again. Machine. Although I don't know, I don't know how many. Do you think there's a lot of tourists in chaos magic these days? Oh, sure. Now it's kind of evolved into some kind of like eclectic witchcraft uh, with leather jackets and spikes. The same kids that used to walk around calling themselves warlocks and had upside down pentagrams on the backs of their leather jackets are now have chaos stars and they call themselves chaos. Uh, You know, to me, that's not what chaos magic was in the beginning or what I think it still is. Uh, You know, it was actually kind of definitely defined in, in at least more definitely defined it wasn't just you know do whatever the hell you want it was more like a mixture of uh, austin spare's sigil magic and uh, his whole zoski occultist practices some thelemic ideas of true will and aeonic history but really with no mention of crowley or holy books or anything like that and then sprinkled liberally with taoism and ecstatic shamanism that's chaos magic that was very well described, and it also kind of represents the way that, that the chaos current was both looking back, like recognizing sources of, of witchcraft and sorcery, but also very much anticipating shifts uh, that were happening um, in, you know, in spirituality, like a, an opening towards uh, shamanism, which now we see in all sorts of 
uh, facets and features, as well as it's mm-hmm. it's nod nod to the east, which you know is there in some other currents. Some other thalamic currents will find itself you know connecting with aspects of of, of Hinduism. But the the connection to Taoism always seemed really profound, partly through Robert Anton Wilson, who was a really important influence on Peter Carroll back in the day, and that's that's a really interesting yeah. connection there too. And and Burroughs and uh, Timothy Leary too. Uh, you know, I think they they Taoism worked better as an Eastern influence because unlike Buddhism, it doesn't have this passivity to it. Uh, you know, Shaolin monks are Taoists. Okay, Taoists aren't passive. Uh, they are moving. In fact, that's the whole idea of Taoism is motion, and uh, so that was a, a a better fit into what like Peter Carroll and Ray Sherwin and Phil Hine and all those people were developing in England back in the late 80s. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, uh, uh, we're, we got about eight minutes left here, and uh, since our current era, some of the most uh, powerful magical forces remain the forces of uh, of capitalism, unfortunately. Uh, I wanted to ask you about one uh event you guys did, which was this Jupiter invocation at the Pacific Stock Exchange. I don't know anything about that, so I'd, I'd love to just hear that story. <laughs> oh, that was fun. Uh, that was when Mark Healy and I came up with that one, uh, the, 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 the rave promoter. We thought that, that, that you know, uh, and, and I think it evolved because, you know, hey, finances are always an issue when you're a promoter. You want to make sure that you can raise the money and, you know, be able to keep renting the venues and keep doing all this stuff. So, well, you know, how can – and it wasn't a – we were trying to do some rejection of capitalism or anything. We were trying to suck more wealth into our projects. So it was kind of the opposite <laughs> of that sensibility. But it was fun. We have a right of Jupiter in the Axe Corpus, and it involves summoning Jupiter to draw wealth. So we decided it would be a good idea to, to, to do this in a public way. And where is a better place than to do it at a temple of wealth, the stock exchange? <laughs> now, in those days, that place was an active exchange. I mean, it was, you know, I think in later years, they just kind of closed it. There's no, you know, people don't, traders don't go there to the trading floor anymore. It's all done online. Uh, but in that, those days, it was like bankers and stock traders in white shirts and ties going in and out of the place. And uh, so we performed it on the steps outside. And the uh, first thing we did, you know, it was like uh, the base of the steps. And we, we took a, uh, a black or was it black or blue rope and wrapped it in a circle to define our working space. And uh, it involved uh, shaking a big money bag full of coins to the four quarters. And we're talking like a, you know, a big cloth Scrooge McDuckian bag with a dollar sign on it. <laughs> and, and we made everything big because, you know, we big movements because it's, you know, when it's a public ritual outside. Uh, we chanted in barbarous tongues and summoned money to come to us. And, you know... A small crowd was kind of watching uh, with interested, puzzled stares on their faces or what are these guys doing? No one called the cops on us. Uh, and, then, you know, looking back, thinking about it, it only was maybe 15 minutes long. It was like, a like, like, like well, what they call now a flash mob kind of thing. We just showed up, 
get it and melt it away. Uh, and, um, you know, as, as far as the, any results go, actually within a few weeks, I got a pretty lucrative audio engineer shortly after that. So I can count that one as a successful working. Well played. Um, so, so again, with our, our few minutes left here, what do you, so you already kind of alluded to some of the sense you have about how chaos magic has become whatever, uh, you know, a, 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 a brand, a, a logo you can put on the back of your shirt. Um, mm-hmm. but, but opening up a little bit wider, where, where do you think the sort of current of, or currents of contemporary magical practice and experience are right now? Like there, on the one hand, there's, it's very visible. There's, it's all over the internet. There's all this sort of teenage witchcraft. There's all this sort of images in pop culture. There's a broader discussion about the occult. Um, but how do you feel as somebody who was really, you know, in the trenches, so to speak, uh, about uh, how this this moment we're in now compares with the the earlier spaces that you were participating in? Well, what I think has happened, you know, in that, you know, over the last 10 years or so is that the the uh, the the attitude of chaos magic has kind of seeped its way into all these other occult movements. Uh, you know, I, I started working with a Golden Dawn order, as you know, that's where we met. And uh, I tried to infuse some of this, you know, uh, uh, excitement and challenge and intensity into what we were doing with that group. And that's in trying, you know, wow, what a study in opposites that is. Uh, I mean, I was also there personally because I wanted to, you know, it's kind of like a, 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 a rock guitar player who decided to go to uh, Juilliard and see what they could teach me. <laughs> but uh, I think also we might be right on the edge of something, another thing like chaos magic exploding again, because we're starting to see it in the young, young generation. I mean, if you've been watching all the things about, you know, the kids now with the March for their, Our Lives and all the things that have been happening just now, that kind of energy of challenge of, I don't want to hear your bullshit anymore. We're going to do this our way and we're going to make it rock. That, you know, you know how society's attitudes often filter into whatever mystical and occult practices and traditions happen to come to the fore at a different a particular point in time. I think these young kids might take what we did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and reimagine it for themselves. And we might see something that we might, you know, through a dark, through a glass darkly, kind of see chaos magic in the distance of what they're doing. But we can't tell them what to do. They're going to do their thing, and we just should just get out of their way and let them do it. Well, I, I love what you're saying there, and I, I agree with you that, that the world is so uh, – there's so many uh, possibilities for significant change as well as significant uh, chaos in the bad sense of chaos. And, you know, up till recently, I would tend to be more negative about looking at the results of, of, of the, the, the kind of mainstreaming influence of chaos magic in the sense that a lot of the alt-right meme magic that was going on around the election is, is really aspects of chaos magic taken in a very dark direction, sometimes quite consciously 
from an occult perspective. Some of those mm-hmm. guys were very, very into sort of, you know, neo-Nazi occultism and, and sort of using using these sort of um, chaos pranks, if you will, in a very uh, diabolical way p- politically, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but with- now things feel different to me. Now it actually feels like the whole thing is up for grabs. There's a lot of really positive things that are possibly occurring as well. I think so, too. I mean, remember, the whole idea of chaos magic is not to just, you know, invoke chaos for fun. It's fun. It's supposed to be fun. If it's not fun, you're doing it wrong. You know, you you, you study magic because you enjoy it, just like a guitar player practices their instrument because they love the music. It's a lot of work. It makes your fingers bleed. It's intense, but you love it. It's just something you have to do. And uh, uh, the idea of chaos magic is not to be overwhelmed by chaos, but to grab a hold of it, jump on its back, and ride it. Excellent, man. I think we're going to have to end it right there. Joe, this was a total treat. I'm so, th- so thanks for, for you know, pulling out the war, the, the war stories. Uh, thanks so much <laughs> for being on the show. You're so welcome, Eric. I, 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 I'm just glad to be here. Excellent. All right, folks, uh, until next week, keep your minds open.